And I'm Chris. And this is Eggs and Espionage, the origins of James Bond. this naked woman lying on the cover but you know we can't put naked this is america can't have a n- breasts on a cover so her fully naked breast is covered up by the head of the motorcyclist in a view to a kill well i have the newest edition is it still pr- printed by penguin thomas and mercer with cover design by archie ferguson and he did it all like black and white with uh, red being the only non-black white color motif for all the novels. Um, so For Your Eyes Only is a fairly abstract cover. Not at all Naked Woman. It's just a bunch of curved lines. Yeah, see, that's garbage. you got to remember, these are like pulps, right? Like, I mean, in both in this uh, story we're going to read today and in Moonraker, he makes reference to, like, pulp authors of earlier times. Mm-hmm. And he is one of them. So I don't know where this like stylish, like abstract cover is coming from. You should get my edition, which was published in, I want to say, when was it published? 2005 or something? 2003. Yeah, super colorful. Um, and it's, they all have the woman, like the, the, the female lead is on the cover of all of them. Of all like, of because them. Because sex sells. Yeah. I don't know where this abstract nonsense is coming from. I, I think they're pretty hip. What do you think, Stephen? <laughs> I think it's boring. Yeah. I think the pulp is uh, is really fun, nostalgic. All right. Well, this is cool. So this is our first time. We got a guest on the pod, Stephen Demon. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. I'm uh, happy to be here. Stephen is an uh, awesome bookshop owner and artist. Um, Extraordinaire. He owns Respectrum Books and Respectrum Arts. I've been meaning to ask you, um, I know the, the meaning of Respectrum has changed and morphed over the years, um, but where are you at with it? What is, what is the meaning of Respectrum? Uh, well, Respectrum is an idea that uh, we can change our viewpoints or mindset or even uh, our physical appearance or, or our persona to the outside world at any given time if we decide to put our heart and mind to it. And so Respectrum Arts was just a, an idea to use this made-up word uh, as a branding, but Respectrum Books has become a place where people can come and search out new ideas or something that inspires them to kind of lead them on a way to new creative endeavors. Nice. I mean, I really connect to the idea of being able to change your, your worldview um, and I think that's a lot about what we talk about on this podcast as we look back at these old books that have a very different worldview and we talk about the new ways we see the world um, and compare them very directly to what Ian Fleming was writing. Amen. Amen. Just for listeners out there maybe wondering why Stephen's on the show, there's a couple natural reasons. One, Stephen was an early listener, so we appreciate that. And two... Uh, we've known Steven for just about as long. I think what Ian, you guys met, what, fourth, fifth grade? I'd describe it as we all sat at the same seventh grade lunch table. We're all on the white mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ed played mm-hmm. Ian. And that's Genius not a racial Murphy's. thing. Our school no. colors are green and white. Green and white, yes. yes. <laughs> does sound weird. I wanted to, to point that out as well. <laughs> We're on there's the white a, team. <laughs> there's green, white, 
And by eighth grade, I think there was a gold team, right? Because there were just so <laughs> there many There was. Kids. They did bring in gold. I thought it'd be a nice way, since you're our first guest, and something we can maybe set up with future guests. Tell us about your either first or most memorable James Bond experience. Well, I, I was thinking about this the other day, and uh, Ian was actually the the first route to knowing about Bond. Uh, his father's really into it, uh, into the movies. Um, and I think we had a middle school argument because I basically told him there were no famous Ians in the world, that there were plenty of famous Stevens in the world, but there were no famous Ians. And uh, he he introduced me to Ian Fleming. Boom, mic drop. Yeah. That's <laughs> the end of the show, and thanks. Then, <laughs> then, yeah, like, like uh, everyone in our generation, I played a lot of GoldenEye, That's and, right. you know, I watched the Pierce Brosnan movies, so they have a nostalgia for me. Anything else you would like to cover or mention or say before we get into the reading or ask? No, I'm just matter? happy to be here, and uh, I'm really proud of you guys to, for doing this, and uh, it's really fun to listen to the podcast. And so if you are listening to this one, and this is your first, go back and look at the first two seasons of Eggs and Espionage. Yeah, that's my line. In honor of the book, I made myself an Americano, which we'll get to in a moment as we start reading. But it actually is quite a nice uh, drink if you don't really want to get hammered. Are you guys uh, have anything pulled up? I made myself an Americano. I, I have just regular coffee. An Americano yes. coffee? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So for those who maybe have never picked up a book and only recognize some of the Bond stuff by the movie titles, uh, we're going to be looking at From a View to a Kill today. So Fleming issued a series of short stories throughout the years, usually later in, the, in his writing career, um, that were published in various places and then combined in two um, collections and, and published as one. So one is For Your Eyes Only, which that title doubles as a short story itself. And the other is Octopussy and the Living Daylights, both of which double as two separate stories. From a View to a Kill, first published in 1959 in the Daily Express under the title James Bond and the Murder Before Breakfast. Makes sense that we do this one first because we are recording Moonraker right now. And evidently, uh, Fleming wrote From a View to a Kill as somewhat of a backstory for the main character Hugo Drax in Moonraker actually a really good backstory i think to james bond's character all right shall we get going yeah a courier from the royal signal corps was enjoying the fine spring weather as he cut through the forests of saint germain on his bsa m20 motorcycle this he thought is a cush gig now that the war was over the only risk left was whether those flakes in the commissary would overcook his morning eggs he glanced in his rearview mirror along a particularly lonely stretch of the forest road Notice that another member of the Signal Corps was catching up. Is that Wally, he pondered? I'll have to mock him for that hookup last weekend. It was, however, an assassin who felled the courier with a single shot of his Luger. It didn't take long to strip the courier of his secrets and staged the scene to look like a robbery before disappearing back into the forest. Meanwhile, James Bond was drinking an Americano in a Parisian cafe and lamenting his rotten luck. Firstly, his most recent job was a disaster. Their agent was dead, and he was facing an inquiry that could potentially ruin him. Secondly, he was in Paris. And the second factor was perhaps the worst. James Bond did not enjoy Paris, despite eating at the same four restaurants and never venturing more than 10 blocks from the train station, 
the city never seemed to lead to more than failed attempts to pick up ladies of the night. As he dreamed of the perfect woman, she walked right up to him, saying a secret phrase, crash dive. Bond knew immediately that he was back on the job. Marion Russell ushered him into her battered Peugeot and drove him swiftly to meet a government agent on the Champs-Élysées. They explained to him the problem. Someone is murdering couriers and stealing secrets as they are driven from Allied headquarters to MI5 building. The head of MI5 has requested that one of his own agents, James Bond, look into it, even though Allied command has already declared that it is a robbery. Bond, who is eager to do anything but to return to the UK for his inquiry, agrees to take the case. Four days later, Bond finds himself laying on the forest floor of St. Germain, watching a clearing that has recently been vacated by a band of gypsies. There really wasn't much to go on, but a few slight clues and his own instinct. As the forest comes alive, Bond notices each element of the natural world as it goes about its business. It's the natural world that first notices the antenna rising from the rose bush. Soon, the ground opens up and three men emerge with the BSA M20. One of the men is dressed in the uniform of the Royal Signal Corps. Bond watches as the assassins wait for more prey. When none come, they return to their bunker and Bond slips away. The next day, Bond makes himself the prey. Dressed in the uniform of the Royal Signal Corps himself, carrying a loaded 45, Bond sets out to lure and kill the assassin. Not long after reaching the forest of St. Germain on his motorcycle, he notices in the rearview mirror that he's being followed. The assassin creeps closer and closer. Then Bond slams on the brakes, skids to a 45 degree angle. The assassin fires and misses. Bond fires and hits. The enemy's motorbike crashes into a tree. One down, two to go. To take down the murderer's accomplices, Bond reverses their gambit by approaching the hideout in disguise of the assassin. It works. The two hidden figures emerge from their underground bunker. It works. That is, until they address Bond in Russian. <laughs> he pulls a gun and they break. One is cut down by the men under Bond's command, but the other one tackles him. The men dare not shoot lest they hit Bond, as the villain is turning Bond's 45 against him. Pop! Though the men didn't dare shoot, <laughs> Marianne Russell didn't mind. She saves Bond's life, and now she's ready for that date he promised. Nicely done. Mm. Yeah, so we start with uh, describing the scene of the motorcyclist. What we learn is the motorcyclist who's riding on a BSA M20, which I assume is some sort of, like, government motorcycle. <laughs> really a popular motorcycle between 37 and 55. It was manufactured by the British Small Arms um, Company Hence for the BSA. war, and it really took okay. off during the war. Like, it was unpopular at first, but it took off during the war and became, like, kind of an iconic war motorcycle. Yeah, I just want to say you could have used context clues to know it was a military cycle. Hey, yeah, Steven, I know, but you I want like to stay that. on this? <laughs> He's driving down. Definitely a look you don't see in too many motorcyclists nowadays. He's got some black rubber gloves, and I, I imagine the goggles he has is a bit of like a steampunk type of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a, I, it's a really cartoonish description i mean these books are all a little bit cartoonish but like the way he describes this guy flying along with like it's it's like a cartoon dog almost you know like with its head out the window 
because he describes the guy's like cheeks billowing out and like you can see his like smile like um, <laughs> yeah, he was, his yeah. teeth are just like bare because he the it's, the wind's whipping his face so fast he can't close his mouth it's pretty funny yeah but anyway he's hurling down the avenue doing what i think it's at like 70 and hey, he's dressed he's in going like exactly uh, the right speed <laughs> he's dressed as a dispatch rider from the royal corps of signals Mm-hmm. which is the British um, communications branch. And actually, what's, I was looking up at them. They're pretty progressive because that, that branch of the army is actually run by a, a lady general these days. Well, I thought it was pretty cool. Sharon Nesmith. Rock and roll, run the army. What I like out of that first like opening is you assume it's somebody else, but Fleming writes it in such a way that it, it could potentially be Bond. At least that's how I read it. The guy, as he's on the motorcycle, he's wondering whether he's going to have his eggs fried or scrambled. Mm-hmm. And for any other listener, we know that Bond does often think about the kind of eggs he's going to have. Um, but he's carrying a Luger, which is a big identifier that it's probably not Bond. Oh, no, that's a 100% identifier. It's like straight up la di da da driving along. He looks like a British guy, but he's a Nazi. Because, <laughs> like, you know, the, yeah, the Luger like is a, a symbol. <laughs> right? Yeah. Dead giveaway. Especially I, I the loved, readers of this era. So I don't read these that often. Or I, but I loved Fleming's way of creating a setting. Early morning, spring day, driving through a forest was just beautiful. Yeah, he, like I could, I could sense being the person that he's describing on that road. Yeah, he gets like really poetic in this one. Like the yeah. <laughs> the poet in Fleming comes out. Like what this slide here, it was seven o'clock on a May morning and the dead straight road through the forest glittered with tiny luminous mist of spring. On both sides of the road, the moss and flower carpeted depths between the great oak trees held the theatrical enchantment of the royal forests of Versailles and Saint Germain. It's beautiful, man. Yeah, I, it was unexpected and it's pretty for cool. me, I mean, especially in the first few paragraphs of reading this. Yeah, but so much, when you come back to these books, like so much of your view of Bond is shaped by the movies and the popular culture and you get those surprises because it doesn't match up mm-hmm. yeah but anyway this guy motors up uh, gets closer and closer on another royal corps the actual royal corps of signals dispatcher he takes off one of his gloves reaches down and takes his luger off the handlebars of the motorcycle yeah the dispatch rider who actually works for um nato is slowing down he sees one of his buddies behind him mm-hmm. um and he's like i wonder who that could be he's just thinking about how he's going to make fun of this guy you know he's like oh it's probably billy and billy went home with that little frog bit in the canteen what was her name i'm totally gonna bust him on that one yeah you know so there is a little casual anti-french racism with the frog line but you know <laughs> it's pretty light by fleming standards rest the gun on his left arm and one shot takes the takes the dispatcher off his motorcycle right into the, uh, I guess like a little meadowy area, right? I had a question <laughs> that maybe maybe Ian had researched. He was ready to raise an ironical finger in salute mm. and self-protection. One magpie is sorrow. Yeah, it's from a nursery rhyme, an English nursery rhyme. Uh, one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, five for silver, six for gold, seven for a secret never to be told. It's, so was the yeah, ironical it's, it's finger in salute, was that uh, like a middle finger or? You know, right. I don't know. I, I don't know. It might be a, a regular salute. It wouldn't have been the American middle finger. Did you guys know that the middle finger 
the middle finger and the two fingers is both from the same thing. It was from yeah. the British um, cutting people's fingers off so they couldn't launch arrows. And they would capture archers, they would cut their fingers off, and then they couldn't operate a longbow anymore. Hmm. And so to insult those, you know, maimed archers, they would hold up their fingers to show, hey, I can still fire an arrow mm-hmm. from my bow. I've got a middle finger or two fingers. That's pretty, yeah, it's kind of a dick move, isn't it? So anyway, the magpie launches itself, and then the murderer murders. Murders. He's pretty pleased with himself. He likes likes how it all turned out. And I love this killer because he's so, like, cocky, quote, and taking the watch and wallet had been nice touches. Pro touches. touches. Like, he's, like, kind of, like, I was like, like, you sound like an amateur if you're, like, I'm such a pro. (laughs) I don't know. Everyone's good. Yeah, like, no one's supposed to even know what happened, right? So... He was trying to confuse the motive. People investigating it end up uh, kind of understanding that that was a uh, right. I thought it was. I thought it was asinine to think that anyone would would buy that it was um, a mugging. Because like, come on, who mugs somebody who's driving a motorcycle at forty miles an hour? Like, you, those guys, you you don't mug and those people. It gets a people. perfect shot too, and gets a perfect right? shot. The silent target. Like a single yeah. shot, like it's very deliberate. Nobody and then, expects the motorcycle robberies. And when you mug someone to steal their wallet and watch, do you take a binder full of papers? <laughs> I I don't think so. Wallet, watch, dispatch papers. Nailed Maybe it. he was just a soldier who who wanted the reap the rewards of the kill, the trophy. So, but he had be. to make it up in his head, like I'm a pro because I'm stealing from the dead. Oh, maybe. He did ride with no hands on a motorcycle and pull off a single shot. I mean, that that's pretty pro. Yeah, but <laughs> he definitely he, is a pro. But I mean, that's what he's thinking. Mysteries. You yeah. gotta hide. You gotta like obscure everything. And the scene of the killing, the forest which held its breath while it was done, slowly began to breathe again. Mm-hmm. And then we dissolve, scene dissolve into Bond being pretty grumpy about being in France. that's true so Bond yeah we gotta move on to cocktails Bond is sitting at a cafe (laughs) in France called Fourquettes drinking a drink that is quote not a solid drink for one cannot drink seriously in French cafes that sounds accurate to me I'm gonna agree with him I just like the idea when you're sitting on the street it's hard to get like really like knocked down drunk you know you wanna be like in a booth like somewhere like solid where you can mm. like really drink heavily. I think in my experiences of drinking, I don't like to be around chaos. I like to like leave the bar into chaos once I'm drunk. Mm-hmm. So I think he's right. Like you kind of need that uh, doorway between your drinking and the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. At least if you're gonna drink seriously. If you're gonna drink seriously, so he's just sport drinking right now. Sport drinking. And by the way, I, I don't drink often. But he's out. Of, he's sitting on the pavement. Traditional French cafe. Uh, cliche here and he says no place for vodka whiskey or gin cognac and water is fairly serious but intoxicates without tasting very good and that that's problematic for mm-hmm. for bond so he's kind of just like ruminating on like what could one drink in this scenario right mm-hmm. he's like i could do a quart of champagne or some pink champagne or orange champagne mm-hmm. i'm i'm guessing champagne orange is like a mimosa right um that's what i thought but then i looked it up and it's actually served with uh, grand Marnier. Oh, that actually so sounds quite nice. So orange liqueur. Yeah, it does sound nice, right? 
But so, as he as he notes, one quart plus, of champagne you, leads you to another know quart. James Bond <laughs> is never going to put fruit juice in his alcohol. But he notes that one champagne leads to another and leads to another. And a little spoiler alert, we learn in Moonraker that that is the case when Bond <laughs> starts mm-hmm. drinking champagne. And it he is a bad foundation for the night. <laughs> also correct. But you can still cheat at cards when you are drunk on champagne. Champagne and Benzedrine go very well together. Mm-hmm. And then you might have Pernod. It's a licorice flavored, um, it's like really like medicinal and like I think it's often served with ice water. It's more like absinthe. Yeah, I mean, these books are like really just like written as like, I want to say Michelin guides to lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Specifically in this paragraph that we've been looking yeah. at, that uh, his critique, it's like he wants to tell the world exactly what he thinks about each one of these alcohols. So why not just fold it into a spy story? Correct. Oh, totally. But anyway, he surmises that there's really only one drink you can have in such a setting. And that is a drink called an Americano, which is made with Campari Cinsano, which is a uh, sweet vermouth, a large Cinsano. slice of lemon, and then some club soda or soda water. And Bond finds that Perrier, uh, in his opinion, cheapest way to improve a poor drink. And of course, because it's called an Americano, it's got to be a poor drink. It's not something that I can imagine Americans being particularly that's, into. Yeah, exactly. That's what's funny about it, right? It's. I mean, the Campari is such a bitter... It's effectively a weaker just... Negroni. Mm-hmm. But it's a summer day, and I mean it's pretty early or spring day. He's he's got he's you know he's got the whole day ahead of him. So start light. That's the Michelin Guide paragraph. I stay at the Terminus Nord, which is like the North mm-hmm. train station. He's supposed to be the most sophisticated person. He's like I stay at the Station Hotel and I go to these four restaurants. Seriously? <laughs> well, he kind of like hates Paris. He like shits on Paris. Like, yeah, well, but he's he kinda... stays at the Station Hotel and goes to four <laughs> restaurants every time he's there. Like he's not really trying. If he wanted a solid drink, he had it at Harry's Bar. Both because of the solidity of the drinks and because on his first visit to Paris at the age of 16, he had done what Harry's advertisement in the Continental Daily Mail had told him to do, and he said to a taxi driver, Saint Louis Dinot. That had started one of the most memorable evenings of his life, culminating in the loss, almost simultaneous, (laughs) of his virginity and his note case. That's great. Yeah, so he's like reliving something every time he's in Paris. That's yeah. What that's if it was just this like twerpy sixteen-year-old who got into a taxi cab and I assume just said like a radio advertisement? <laughs> heard, right. And that First, must have been like so, the best night of his life and the worst night of his life. I love that Harry's Bar advertised on the radio and said like, "Come to Paris, get a drink at Harry's Bar, and then go to the red light district by telling your taxi driver this." So that's super fun. That they were advertising that in like the London newspapers. It was a so different that, time. But, it was a different time. Um, but he, I'm just saying, the, the, if the he wanted to enjoy street. Paris, he could try not going to like pick up prostitutes from a public square, and like <laughs> taking an opera. I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe walk down by the river. That's an incredibly beautiful experience to be down by the river. Are there prostitutes he, by the river? He goes nowhere near the river. Like pre-planned. Paris excursion. He comes into the North Station and he stays within like a ten block radius. There and he's no... like, I hate Paris. It sucks. Because <laughs> <laughs> he keeps having this experience over and over. He want like he needs it to suck because it sucked once before. And he, like, all I'm saying is, he doesn't really seem to give Paris a chance. Probably that's in part because he's a little depressed. 
Bond just came back from a job that he failed miserably. A dismally failed assignment on the Austro-Hungarian border. This might be one of the few references to a job not well done. Well, I think this is, to me, this is the backstory, right? This is why Bond works alone, and this is why Bond ends up getting to be a double O. He's not given a double O status in, in this section or in this story, right? He's just, a, he works for the secret agent, the secret service, MI6, and, and they don't really date it or contextualize it in the in the chronology of the stories. So I think this is before he becomes a double O, and this may be when he becomes a double O, because he doesn't work with people after this mm. and the the mission he failed he went to the austro-hungarian border to get somebody at, like extract an agent and everyone there ended up resenting him so much that the mission failed mm-hmm. and he blames like everyone there for like willful miscommunication and like they screwed me over like they didn't want to know what i was trying to tell them to do when in reality like i i can't i find it hard to believe that anyone in this line of work would um would let someone die, like let one of your agents die because you don't like your boss. But that's kind of how Bond paints it a little bit as he's lamenting his failure. He has to get court-martialed basically after it? Or he has yeah, to well, he's coming back to London to like go through a hearing, right? So his, his career is on the rocks, and that's why he's mm-hmm. in Paris on his way home, and he's you know he wants to have himself, as he says, an old-fashioned ball, right. which I presume means get blackout drunk. And, and he's coming back with his tail between his legs. Mm-hmm. And then he like imagines this whole scene where he meets this uh, presumably beautiful woman or a quote real girl. The myth of Paris in the spring. And they're going to be a little flirty. And then by God, by the end of the evening, it would not be his fault I mean, if it transpired that there was in fact no shred of stuffing left in the hoary old fairy tale a good time in paris yeah but but this time it's going to be okay because he's going to save her from prostitution he's going to give her fifty thousand francs as soon as possible to clear (laughs) the money look out of her eyes (laughs) yeah what but he's gonna he's gonna save her how i read it he's gonna make her fat happy and fat and uh no, that's just the one meal. That's not a yeah. lifetime. He's just saying, here's a ton of money. I'm going to make you happy and fat. I'm going to buy you dinner. And then it's right, not my pretend fault. pretend that we have a real relationship. It's not my fault if we go back and have sex at that point. Mm-hmm. I called this one James Bond's story of how to rationalize paying for sex in Paris. <laughs> it's like, okay, if you do it this way. Like, <laughs> but then he's sitting there. He's drinking. Yeah, he just shits on Paris for like three pages. <laughs> Until the waiter brings him his drink. You know what I find interesting is that he doesn't impress and, the waiters in Paris, and I think that might be why he oh, um, that is doesn't why. like it. Because in put all the so books, much like, thought there's... into this drink order. Right. I'd like an Americano, but it must be served with <laughs> Campari, but not your normal Cinzano, but the Cochi Americano brand of vermouth. And a lemon, but the lemon must be twisted at three quarters. I want you to apply two pounds of torque to it. <laughs> and the waiter's like, damn, you're super good. So, But the waiters in Paris are like, this guy's yeah, a here's your drink, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> that might be his problem. And even, even though he's like imagining the scene with the prostitute, he still gets really cynical after he gets his drink, and mm-hmm. he's like, of course the evening would be a disaster. 
Even supposing he found the girl in the next hour or so, the contents would be certainly not up to the wrapping, not stand up mm-hmm. to the wrapping. Shits onto this imaginary girl who's <laughs> and describes like all of her shortcomings <laughs> that he imagines. <laughs> It's kind of a bummer. And then, but I, what I love though is that, I, and Bond smiled to himself. And she and her mackerel, I don't know how to pronounce it in French, but she and her mackerel would probably steal his note case. Mm-hmm. So he's I, I love it. The, yeah, he is. It's like 100. It totally is the replay of his Dark Soul, Stephen, as you say. I do believe he's he's trying to pick up the one, though. I keep rereading it, and he's and she's and he's so gonna, impressed. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he gets to govern the entire interaction and say, we, we know each other. We actually know each other. Let me convince the woman of that, mm. and then we'll enjoy ourselves, and, and I'm going to rescue you from prostitution. I hear what you're saying, and I think it's a valid point. I disagree with you. I think in the context of this, he still has her as a prostitute, but he just wants her to pretend that she's a real woman. I don't think there's any intention of his to actually make a real relationship with the prostitute, but he wants her to pretend like it is. He's like dreaming of how to succeed in something. Hmm. Yeah, totally. He's totally like in dream world. Yeah. Yeah. And he wants to like have that fantasy, like become reality. And it, you know, and then it very quickly, it does, right? Who walks in, right? Walks in, she drives up in her black Peugeot 403, gets out of the car. off like three people. <laughs> Looking exactly the way Bond imagined his his woman of the night would look. She's got a beret. He's got some black hair. I think she's wearing glasses, right? She comes down. She sits down at the table, and she's like, uh, "Sorry, I'm late, but we gotta get going." And he's like, well, "What the hell are you talking about, baby? You just got here." Hey, you have a drink first. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk price. Yeah, I got I'll give you the price for you. <laughs> Let me give you the money first, baby. Come on, I had this plan. You got now. that money look in your eyes. <laughs> what? Uh, I love how he describes her, though. Um, she was the sort of woman who always belongs to somebody else. Mm. And then it turns out she like sits down at his table and is just like, I belong to you. Yeah. And he's like, oh. Well, he's like, what were you going to do if I had a girl with me? And she's like, eh, I was going to pretty much do the same thing, just call you sir. And he's like, well, you sound pretty resourceful. Sounds like you know what you're doing. <laughs> I guess well, I'll go let, with you. Let me let me clarify a little bit um, how incompetent James Bond is as a Secret Serviceman. She rolls up, sits down at his table, and she says, like, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm afraid we have to get moving at once. You're wanted in the office. And then she added under her breath, crash time. And he's like, oh, crash dive. Why, that's like well-known Secret Service word for like something's happening, you better come in. But it's not like a specific code for him. Mm -hmm. It's just like random lingo that they use in the Secret Service. So I'm I'm reading this and I'm like, James Bond, clearly this is a honeypot with a little bit of false flag mixed in, right? Like she's coming in pretending to be Secret Service, but she's just a beautiful woman and she's like, get in my car. <laughs> and he's like, okay. It's like, you sound like you know what you're doing. I, I wrote Let's go. I wrote right, right at that paragraph, I wrote, he's depicted as a genius in this iconic status put together. But sometimes I read him like a complete bumbling character. Oh, he yeah. totally is, Stephen. We'll, yeah. we'll get into talk about luck later. Luck versus yeah. skill. We'll get. Yeah, we'll come back totally. to that recurring motif in this in this podcast. You're totally right. Like he is such a bumbling fool because he's so like he just wants to be in love all the time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they start making small talk in the car. I like she's she's talking about like how she's not a prude. Bond is like kind of impressed that she's driving so well. 
right in the first place and she's like well i can't take the bus or the train anymore because whatever time of day it is you end up with your quote behind black and blue she laughed <laughs> yeah i mean I, I, cool. I don't want to say that that's untrue it's it's i'm not a woman who's ever been in in france or italy so i you know like that is something i've heard about the french and italians you're not a woman who's been anywhere and well let's not go crazy here <laughs> but the black and blue is referring to being pinched on the butt correct oh yeah, yeah like the the french men are like totally sexually assaulting her everywhere she goes yeah which is so horrific. she gets a car to avoid them Pretty yeah exactly much. and then she drives like a complete maniac she actually has a philosophy of driving that like i think is pretty awesome mm -hmm. my philosophy of driving is to be reckless and self-centered and if anyone gets in my way and we have a crash well pff, you know whatever <laughs> not my problem i think you What's touched up? on this in another episode that um doesn't believe women can drive in the first place and that he was he fun. was he was perturbed by it when he came to America and our, and our women were driving. Yeah, mm. that was shocking to him. You know, toxic masculinity, right? Like it, the man must be driving, if, and if you're not driving, you're being emasculated by your woman. Pretty As much. Bond is being emasculated here because he's actually super nervous about her reckless, self-centered <laughs> driving style. <laughs> yeah, which is also I just want to say really horrible when you consider that she is not French and she like comes to France and is like the worst driver and is like so entitled to like I don't give a shit I'm gonna just drive how I want well, anyway she takes him down to station F sure he just gets so like she quickly takes brief. her down to station F where she meets uh, wing commander Rattray um, a, a kind of fat guy who chain smokes uh, I don't know again the French is killing me here uh, Goulot's the French cigarette and I found it super ironic that Bond's like, your office stinks of these French cigarettes. Meanwhile, James Bond has oh, not right. been known to smoke less than 50 cigarettes a day. No. So, Interesting. so this is before he uh, started smoking, maybe? Because they no, never he, mentioned him smoking. He has this. a cigarette at uh, the cafe. Oh, okay. We skipped over that, but... Yeah, I mean, he, he might not be smoking as much as he does in later... He, he lit a Lorenz Jaune. The first chapter of the first James Bond book declares James Bond snubbing out his 80th cigarette of the day. So that kind of set a precedent in my mind. We just assume he's constantly smoking at this point. I absolutely do assume yeah. that. Basically, this is all part of like some operation called Shape, S-H-A-P-E. No. Well, Shape is, um, the Operation Shape is something that still exists today in Europe. It, it came oh, out of shape. World War II. And it was, it stands for the um, Supreme Headquarters of Allied Powers Europe. Oh, cool. And so, and that's what it is concerning. And it's concerning, this whole story is concerning the interplay between the whole Allied Powers and their bureaucracy and military power in Europe and MI6's private, like, Secret Service headquarters. And the interplay of information between those two is what led to the murder and stealing of information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Bond, get us out of this. <laughs> we screwed up. Go fix it. Well, for right. Us. So basically, they they brief Bond that like, hey, this dispatcher got murdered. Nobody can figure out what's going on. We've we've looked through the entire forest, can't find shit. He and Bond's like, what the hell am I supposed to do? I I can't get that. And they're like, well, M says, and you happen to be available right. and more or less on the spot. <laughs> He's like, right. so you were here. Mean, Basically, M caused the whole thing by refusing to just put his headquarters in with everybody else. That's true, yeah. 
Like they have. They do compliment Bond here too by saying that he he <clears throat> needs someone who can search out uh, yeah. the hidden or the silent, the invisible man, the invisible mm-hmm. man. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and I think and that I, compliment really like boosts Bond's ego, oh. and he's he's ready again. Well, M is like basically Bond's father figure. Yeah, so he gets the compliment, he gets the mission, and he has a woman of interest, and half an hour before he had been fed up with Paris, glad to be going. Now he had hoped that he'd be staying. Mm-hmm. Get that? What a godsend that he's he's gonna keep thinking about his failure on the Austro-Hungarian border until oh, here's something to do. And that's going to keep him from having to go back and deal with, you know, the last thing. It's like a trifecta of his motivations because he's got his purpose in pleasing M, his motivation because of the woman. He's got a specific task at hand. So it's like a trifecta of like Bond coming back to Bond. Mm-hmm. Laser beam focus. He's not getting drunk yeah. tonight. <laughs> well, maybe a little. But then they like give him her Peugeot. They like commandeer her car. So the commander's like, okay, well, this girl picked you up. She can be in charge of you while you're here. So she's your point person if you need anything. But uh, she doesn't her, drive take down Take her car. Him. No, she doesn't. Yeah. Rat Ray, the, the guy telling Bond what to do, says, oh, it should take you about 15 minutes if you're going 50. And Bond's like, tell them to half the speed and double the time. <laughs> tell, mm-hmm. tell Colonel Schreiber it's, I'm going to take twice as long. <laughs> Why? Is that just like a power move? I, th- I also consider like he's you know kind of enjoying... The, the ride, as it were, he wants you to You know of... he's not enjoying driving a Peugeot, Ian. There's no way. <laughs> but it smelled of her. Uh, there is that. He it can eat, eat the chocolates he found in the, <laughs> the glove compartment. He gets down so he where found he's some going. Swiss chocolate. He found a John O'Hara novel, which was kind of a John Grisham of the era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going back to those uh, Ian Fleming-type novelists. Oh, so he's, he's spending that time investigating her. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. He wants to know more about the girl. There you of go. Of interest. Yeah. So I'm going to take a little bit longer um, and goes for a little little ride out to visit Shape. And you know what's great is that he, there's all those acronyms that are so definitive of, of like Bond. You know, the, you have Spectre, Special Organization for Evil and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you have what is it Smirsh <laughs> like there's always an acronym for like whoever he's like fighting against yeah and it comes out of the real acronyms that like actually shaped post World War II oh, Europe sure. like shape like that's a real acronym that stood for a real power structure yeah or like NATO. USA whatever that means right I don't know what it means I just chant it whenever <laughs> someone else starts <laughs> USA, USA, USA. <laughs> hey, you started it. It's very catchy. Uh, but anyway, he meets Colonel G. A. Schreiber, Chief of Security Headquarters Command, who was quote a ramrod, straight, middle-aged American with graying hair and the politely negative manner manner of a bank manager. And there are several family photographs in silver frames. What a loser! This guy's got a family. I just really like that that uh, phrase, politely negative manner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bob, Bond shit I think a lot of people walk around too. with a politely negative manner in the world. Here, mm-hmm. Okay, here's where he's kind of like dismayed. There it's was no English. smell of tobacco smoke in the room. So he's kind of like put off. He was put off that the French guy smoked too much and is put off that the American doesn't smoke at all. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. I, I think he doesn't trust someone who doesn't smoke. 
Mm-hmm. He came through like as Bond parked the car in the park park with theatrical suddenness. A hundred arc lights blazed and ah. lit up the acre of low-lying hutments in front of him as if it was yeah. day. Feeling naked, Bond walked across the open gravel beneath the flags of the NATO country. Like you can't get into this place without. Clearly, and basically every country checked his his credentials. Yeah, like he literally oh, yeah. went through like all the countries in NATO. And he, he yeah, ends up doing this thing where he shares a compliment. I feel like he was trying to ease the commander's mind and like to get. He does, way. but he fails. <laughs> and yes. the commander ends True. up hating him. Of yes. course, they hate each other <laughs> almost mm-hmm. immediately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, because Bond starts asking questions like, "Well, don't you think it could have been a guy who looked who the dispatcher trusted? Maybe that's why they didn't." And he's like, "Yeah, we thought of that, you dickhead." <laughs> We thought as well as every other a possible option. Bond's like, "Oh right, because you've been cool. you've been cool. researching that's, this yeah. for a while." Yeah, yeah. That's, got that's it. Great. And they didn't follow it up on it either. They like Bond basically calls out exactly the scenario and exactly the scenario. Yeah, yeah. exactly the scenario within within minutes. Yeah, and they just can't find any evidence of it. The commander's like, mm-hmm. "No, no, that's just one of many." Right. <laughs> and I just want to throw out here just. A totally different scenario that would probably be way easier and definitely comes from The Great Escape. Um, but Steve McQueen in The Great Escape, he escapes from a, a Nazi prison camp and he steals a motorcycle by tying a rope across the road and then like pulling it up when a motorcycle comes mm-hmm. by. Why did they have to chase him down like in this like super elaborate costume when they could have just used a rope to take down a motorcyclist and take his stuff? Yeah. I think it's gamesmanship, man. He just, I mean, he just likes pulling off a shot skilled. off the motorcycle. Yeah, it just seems like way harder than necessary. That's all. I'm saying. So much effort. Yeah, that wouldn't have made a great bond. And the, com- and the commander like piss each other off. <laughs> bond decides that you know this is kind of important, but I'm gonna give up after a couple of days. So I'll just like pretend like I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'll try to hook up with Marianne Russell because she seems kind of hot, <laughs> and then you know I'll throw away this job after I hooked up with her. So. You know, that's fine. And then he falls asleep in his borrowed bed. But this is a short story, so we got to fast forward. So four days later, we come to a scene where Bond's waking up in the forest of St. Germain, and he's lying in along a thick branch of an oak tree, keeping watch over a small, empty glade. But he's thinking about the past four days, and I thought Fleming... Flashback. Did an awesome job. Yeah, he like flat. Yeah, like skip forward. He, flashback. He loves that technique. That's Funny one of his does. classic structures. Classic. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's literally four days later, and then reflecting on the last two days. Like, why didn't you just tell us about the next two days? I think he just like well, that the first the first two days were super boring. Let's just throw those away. Like Bond is checking over all the details everyone else checked, and but he does garbage. it because he fills you in. I think he just liked the juxtaposition of like Bond going to sleep and waking up in the tree, you know? And now he's like, okay, now let me explain why he's in the tree. Well, yeah, but it gives you some point of context that's more interesting than the next I like that. Boring. I like yeah. that. Like, it, it kind of woke me up as I was reading because it, it it's was good. this. You're like, why that, is he in this that, bush? Got that. But now it's like, let's head, yeah, let's head forward, but head back. Yeah. Like, it's really cool. James Bond lying in a bush? That's not how I think of James Bond, you know? I get excited. How do you think of James Bond, Ian? I think of him drinking a freaking cocktail and trying to pick up prostitutes at Place Pigale. Shitting all over wherever he is. <laughs> trying yeah. to get prostitutes. And just making a friend feel bad about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, that's how I think of him. Not lying in a forest, like, really enjoying the nature, which he does. Yeah. Deeply. He has a spiritual moment on the forest floor. It's true. He does. Basically, what what had transpired is he tried to double-check on, on all the, the backstory and stuff, and then, you know, that didn't pan out with anything, so he ends up going down to the Secret Surface base, you know, his his department's headquarters, where he feels more comfortable because they're his people. Uh, and then he gets a call from the colonel. He's like, oh, hey, we did what you said. We sent the team of police dogs out, scanned the whole forest. Yeah, we, we found shit. And, and Bond's like, oh, I'm sorry for wasting your time, but can I talk to the dog handler? And he's like, well, whatever, sure, I'll, you can talk. But by the way, how long are you staying? Because uh, <laughs> we got this party coming in from Holland. Kind of need your room. Continuing his politely negative manner. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, dude, the Bond's best trying to solve what you couldn't. They both hang up on each other at the same time. <laughs> Fleming put, puts that in there. He does, yeah. So anyway, he talks to the dog handler. Dog handler's like, oh, they just, the dog smelled some gypsies, but um, they always do. Gypsies are always there. And, and Bond's, like, interested in, in what that could mean. So, Yeah, maybe as an expert, he's realized that the dogs might pick up gypsy scents and that it hangs about there for months. To me, in a tone which was saying, like, that they smell bad. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right, because they live without modern sewers. Yep. Like they don't have a septic system. They're pooping in the woods. This is definitely. I mean, definitely a campsite that people live in is gonna yeah. smell. For a dog, it's gonna smell for a long time after. So that is true. There's also gonna be cultural hatred of the gypsies imbued in that, and I think it's all written. It's just something you have to be aware of. I mean, it's it's happening as we as we're reading, like totally under the words. Everyone would be like, "Goddamn gypsies!" Of course, <laughs> of course they stink. Like. <laughs> And then he makes some small talk about the handler's profession before he leaves. And I was like, of course he does. Because James Bond knows literally about everything. Oh, you use the um, the Harrigan straps? Like, you know, no, I, I, I mean, if I don't do this, but I would be using the Daniford, you know, that's my personal preference. Because you get more grip, don't you think? Yeah. Always a dick, Whatever, yeah. Whatever, Bond. But anyway, Bog's intrigued by the, the gypsy theory, and he wants to know more. He learns a little bit more. Asks around where where were the dogs smelling this? But he gets out in the woods, right? Like he he's gets like out he goes woods. to the spot where the gypsies yeah. were, yeah. And, and he, he looks around. He notices some scrapes on a tree that were like caked in mud, because he's literally a tracker extraordinaire. Yeah, he's amazing. He follows. He's so is amazing. That, is that some slight hint of a trail? And then he follows like that too. We know he's got the blood of a nose hound. Mm-hmm. You know, and the hound of a nose blood. Mm-hmm. He finds a scratch in the tree, kind of covers it up, uh, and there were three, quote, camouflage scratches on one tree and four on the other. Like, he basically just was like, okay, I'm going to camp out here and see what I see, right? After he finds these scrapes on the tree. He yeah. finds the scrapes in the tree, and he follows them back along that trail to the clearing where the dogs, and he stakes out the clearing. Right. Yeah, he, he went back to it. He Like, once he realized that there's something up over here, he wanted to go back to it, to the to watch the scene of the crime mm -hmm. over time. He wakes up at 6.30, time for breakfast, and pops a glucose tablet. Yeah, which is which is pretty lame. I mean, that's not going to keep you going. It's, it's actually a really stupid, like, idea that just eating and This isn't tablets. called glucose and espionage. And a glucose tablet. <laughs> and, right? Like, hard-boiled egg. Not, no eggs. 
Hard-boiled egg, buddy. That's going to get you way farther than a glucose tablet. But it leaves traces behind. you got to leave the shell laying about. I mean, that's true, but Benzedrin, you need to smoke cigarettes on, like, basically, constantly. I think it was, it was interesting, too, because he was having, like, a moment out in the woods. Uh, like, a he lot of an introspection moment. In Bond, lying along the oak branch, smiled to himself. Private armies, private wars, how much energy they siphoned off from the common cause, how much fire they directed away from the common enemy. I know. He's, he's suddenly a person, a human. He's bitching and moaning about uh, about M and shape, like headbutting. Like the, that's the private armies and private wars. But yeah, he's noticing the squirrels eating nuts. He's hearing the birds, looking at the spring and all the new greenery. And what does he Two notice? Two wood pigeons had noisily, had been noisily courting among the thick grass. Mm -hmm. Started to make clumsy, fluttering love. <laughs> A pair of hedge sparrows went. Busily on collecting bits and pieces for wonder, a nest they were tardily building in a thorn bush. That's foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, it might be. <laughs> to the end of the book. I like how he judges the hedge sparrows because they were tardily building their nest. Like, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> as he's noticing they around, want to. he sees a, a little rose thicket start to start to move. So he's in the he's in the bush. He's on his oak branch, and he's covered with his camouflage, and he's eating his glucose, and he's watching the sparrows, and he's watching the uh, the wood pigeons do each other, and the hedgehogs, and what have you. And the soft but hum then, of bees. Yeah, the soft hum of bees. That all of this beautiful nature is happening, and then it it breaks apart, right? Like everything is like, oh no, boom, scatter. That's what tells him something's happening in this clearing. He doesn't know what yet. And he sees a rose stem seem to swivel and expand. And the yellow pistols suddenly draw aside, and the sun glinted on a glass lens the size of a shilling. Nothing like a spy flower. A spy Am I flower. right? Yeah. And then it closes, goes back down, and Bond's like, holy shit, I was right. <laughs> and these two doors opening, like it's not a hatch that opens up, right? I imagined it almost like coming out of a, maybe a little bump in the ground. Yeah, I kind of saw it as like a Bilko doors to a, a basement. There you go. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so those open up. These guys come out. They throw, like, snowshoes on so as not to leave any footprints. Oh, they thwarted Bond the tracker. One of the motifs here, too, is Bond always gives props to his enemy for, for being clever, and he, he does so here. He's like, man, these guys are, are smart. Loves it. There's, like, three... Calls them clever bastards. They come out, two of them carrying a motorcycle... One not, and it's, of course, a BSA M20, the very motorcycle that the Royal Corps of Signals uses. Gasp. He's, he's it all comes it rushing to his brain at once. My God, this terrible GRU secret unit is hidden out in the forest. They've buried themselves into the very forest floor, but they're ready to come out and stalk dispatch riders like a like an ant lion lying in wait at the ant... <laughs> Colony's door. Nice, nicely said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just threw a little nature in there. I mean, there's so much nature in this in the story. I just thought I wanted to make a nature analogy. That's all. I thought you were reading directly from it. Oh no, no it was that, exquisite. Really, yeah, no, Ian Fleming. He doesn't talk about ant lions very often. So Bond basically devises a plan. A brilliant plan. And the scene opens with Marianne basically like, you're a fucking idiot. Why would you do this? This is Shape's problem. That's true. You solved it. And he's like, yeah, baby, listen. I don't know listen, if you've read listen, my listen. books. 
but I gotta do this, okay? Nobody can. He solve actually, this he actually does have to do this. I, I agree with him because if he stops his work now and get, turns it over to shape, that's great. Oh, you feather in your cap, whatever. Go back and deal with your court martial. Yeah. Or, and they're having he could this. Die trying. They're having this argument because he's basically asking her to like send the the documents back to M, saying, "Here's what we're gonna do." Mm-hmm. And she's like, "I won't do it." And he's like, just be a good girl and do as you're told. Who's the baby? Who's the baby? Shut up. <laughs> but basically the plan, in a nutshell, is he's going to be the dummy dispatcher. So Bond is going to get on the bike, look like a Royal Corps member, and ideally when the enemy starts to chase him down, surprise, surprise, it will be Bond shooting at this other guy. Mm-hmm. And Marianne says, you're just a lot of children playing at Red Indians. But she's kind of mm-hmm. right. You know, my plan would have been something like, oh, I found out where these dudes are. Let's get everyone to come here with their guns and right. stuff. And then when they open the door, we'll, like, grab them and beat them up and, like, take their things and what have you. Why not just yeah. do that? James yeah. Bond comes up with a sweet plan. It's way better <laughs> than my plan and safer. <laughs> uh, Marianne, also may not have worked because of timing issues. There's so many reasons like, it could have not can't worked. Pre- you can't, yeah, you can't predict what they're going to do. It was reliant on a lot of factors that were out of Bond's control. And also, why are those people still there? I guess to steal more dispatching papers. Yeah. Yeah, but why do they think they're like, doing it again? I it just seems odd to of... me that, that, everyone, that everyone's doing things exactly the same after this incident. So Shape is, doing every, Shape is still sending one motorcycle rider out each day at a certain time. Yeah, and 100%. Yeah. The people I who totally are... Agree. The, the, the people who are trying to steal it are also doing the same exact thing this time as the last time. Mm-hmm. As if well, that actually no one's going to learn the, better. To my moral question for James Bond is, I, I, I guess you guys read it as Shape is doing the same thing. I wasn't sure how to read it as Bond was watching them go out. Was he watching that guy go off to kill somebody? Were there other dispatch riders coming through the forest that day? Did, did Bond know that or know that there weren't? Or did he just not care? Because he laid there and watched this plan unfold. The guy went out to do a murder. No one drove by, so he came back. Did Bond let him go out to do a murder, not knowing? Well, there might have not been a... I don't know if these guys knew there was a dispatch every day. So they probably set up the motorcycle, sat there between... Because they knew it was between the hours of what? Like 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. that this guy comes flying by. And if no one comes by, they just bring the motorcycle back. I guess play rummy in their (laughs) bunker (laughs) for the rest of the day. And they come out and repeat it in the morning and see if there's another one. You do it twice, and definitely no one's driving to dispatch down that road again. You yeah, or, or without without like extra precautions, you know. It is a lot of effort to maybe steal two. Yeah. Basically, Bond and Marianne are like, okay, fine. Well, just after this is all done, let's go have dinner, drink champagne, and listen to Gypsy Violins. Yeah, so that's actually the worst part of it. Marianne's like, you are a moron. Like, this is the stupidest way you could solve this case. And he's like, will you have dinner with me if I survive? And she's like, like okay, I'm on I'm on board now. He's like, put, put it in the printer. I'm sorry, but it's in order. And she's like, geez, you didn't have to pull rank on me, you dick. I was going to do it anyway. <laughs> do you want to have dinner? He's like, oh, yeah, let's have some dinner. That'd be great. Cool. Yeah, okay, yeah good. great, 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 great. It's it's one of his trifectas of motivation. Yeah, it's, it's duty, yeah. country, uh, no. intercourse. <laughs> Bond gets Let's on the see. bike, 
puts on his Royal Corps uniform. He's kind of giddy. He, he forgot how much fun it was driving motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, has his 45 cult. I know. that That's what I found interesting. You know, we know that the murderer murders with a Luger. And so Bond is going to counter the Luger with a with a American-made American Colt. Gun, yeah, not his Beretta. What is that about? It's got to be a strong... I'm guessing it has better stopping power. But anyway, Bond's tearing down the avenue. Um, finally, in his rearview mirror, he sees a little black dot, and he's like, oh, shit, it's on. And the guy catches Game up. But then there was a tiny black speck in the center of the convex glass. A midge that became a fly, and then a bee, and then a beetle. When the killer's right hand went for the gun, so Bond slows down to 20, 30, head on the tarmac. Just as the guy gets close enough, I'm, I'm guessing Bond, like, jackknifes it, right? That's how I read this. He kind of yeah, slams the brakes. Yeah, he skids out at a 45-degree angle and takes a shot. And he says he was not quite quick enough on the draw. The killer gets off two shots, uh, but it hits the saddlebags or the saddle springs besides Bond's thigh. So Bond doesn't get hit, but he gets the next shot off, and, of course, one shot knocks the guy right off his bike as if lassoed from within the forest veered crazily off the road crashes right into a tree smashes his head open like an egg oh, gross really gross. <laughs> yeah the crash and helmet bond... had smashed like an eggshell so bond's like i don't even need to shoot him again we're good no yeah he just walks over <laughs> and, and, and like, there is nice. fleming uh, obsessed with eggs the ultimate food and the ultimate symbol of death and right here on the page, Fleming notes he had Bond had been lucky. Yeah. I mean, there's some skill here, though. I mean, the dude jackknife a bike, turns out and pulls off a shot. The thing we always comment on, Stephen, is how whenever there is some act of skill, Bond notes how lucky he was. And whenever it's like sheer luck, it's always like, God, I'm the best. About skill, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's literally no reason to risk your life. Yeah. You just yeah. set up an ambush well, for the ambusher. And, and he didn't even time it right where, where it. The, the enemy got two shots off. Those shots could have easily exactly. gone into him. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So he's super lucky. I agree with him here. He was super lucky. He is lucky. But the, and then and to then, your point, Ian, like this whole plan, they still have to go back to the bunker to get the other two guys. And so they roll back there. Bond pretends to be like the murderer. As soon as they speak Russian to him, they realize that he is not who he's supposed to be. He did make the sensible plan and had the place surrounded. So as soon as they realize he's, you know, everyone else that he got involved in this plan rushes out. Yeah, well, there's like four other guys, right, with shape. They're not with shape. I thought they That's were. very distinct. They're with the they Secret Service. They're not part of oh, NATO. The they're service. part of the okay. Secret Service, My which bad. is My the bad. organization responsible for this whole thing. And they're all looking place. to the kind of, like gain the prestige of the secret service back in in shape mm, fair enough yeah so yeah so these two guys see him they say something in russian bond doesn't respond so he pulls out his gun one charges mm-hmm. bond one runs the other way and bond the gentleman that he is doesn't even take the safety off his gun he's just like hey we got you busted shake us up guys let's let's come peacefully you we're naughty boys um, he doesn't get to his gun quick enough, so the guy basically tackles, tackles him, him and turns his gun on him. He's about to murder James Bond. He's sitting on. He's. Like, I, I imagine he's like prostrate. The guy's sitting up on him, right, with like a gun right it's in his face. It's that classic scene where they're struggling for the gun and it's yeah. like turning slowly, <laughs> like towards his face, and he's like, "Oh no, I'm gonna die!" And then, bang! Die for showing mercy. The irony. The irony. The murderer. Die for being a gentleman. Drops away. And then talk about luck. Yeah, someone so of else someone saves him. Picks off the the gunman, the guy who's sitting on him. 
and the four guys from the Secret Service come up and they're like, it wasn't us. We were too afraid of killing you. And who was it? It was Russell. It was Marianne Mary Russell. Ann. In her brown mm-hmm. shirt and black jeans. Odd color combo, I have to say. And she rolls in. She's like, I didn't give two hoots if you lived or died, so I took the shot. Yeah, pretty much. Which <laughs> and James kind of Bond badass. is like, wow, I'm totally in love with you. He pr- she's not saying, only... like, you know, don't, don't get anyone in trouble. I just came on my own accord. I couldn't leave without you. Yeah, and he's like, that's, yeah. he's like, no problem. But it ends, he goes, come over here. I want to show you a bird's nest. Is that an order? Yes. Basically, he's like, hey, it's all good. Let's go fuck in the forest right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've been dreaming of this moment for like four days sitting in the forest. <laughs> There's two dead mm-hmm. bodies. Four other guys in the secret set. It's okay. Come on. I know a thing. Someone it. will clean up all I know that. a thing. We can go to right now. It's got to be now. <laughs> <laughs> it's what a weird way to end it. He's got to be covered in blood, right? She just shot <laughs> dude sitting on him mm-hmm. in the back. All that's got to be like all over him. He's like, come on, let's go get Randy. And she's like, you would think she'd be like, ah. Uh, how about you wash up first? I don't know. But to Just be fair, he also did spend all morning watching some sparrows tardily build their nest. So maybe he does just want to show her that tardy nest. <laughs> <laughs> but I also want to point out that this is, again, like, this is, like, one of those moments, like, in Casino Royale where he fails, like, pretty blatantly. Yeah. Then they write it off as a success and just forget about it. Like, the idea was if you capture some of them, you can do so much intelligence good. Yeah. And instead of setting up a plan in which he can capture them, he sets up a plan in which everybody dies. That's not good to them. Everybody dies. Like, how do they reverse the damage the Secret Service caused? The Secret Service caused damage to the intelligence agencies of the West. They didn't fix it. It's honestly one of my least favorite. Short stories. <laughs> I was, I mean, I was I thinking about the. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Symphorphilia. There are people who are sexually aroused by watching disasters or like uh-huh. their adrenaline junkies of, and perhaps that's what Bond is. Like we, mm. we said that he he's adrenaline junkie. I think he's. I think he's also a little suicidal. I think the reality is like if he fails at this, then he's going to go home and face you know charges his career is going to be over he's going to be kicked out of the service it's going to be bad times so in part he wants to make it as extreme as possible i guess he or but here's the real the clincher is that when she asks him if it's an order to go see that bird's nest he he says yes so he's using the the full weight of his rank in the secret service to sexualize this woman instead of just saying no it's totally voluntary right like you should come with consent. me for sexuality but I'm he says no I'm ordering you to they're having a little inside joke moment that's from a view to a kill it's actually from a view to a kill to a bird's nest <laughs> to a thicket does anyone else have any concluding thoughts on this short story personally I haven't read James Bond in quite a while uh, and never really in its entirety and Hmm. And it was very refreshing to do so, and especially in a short story form. Yeah, and particularly these kind of like pulp fictions, right? Where it's they're just meant to be quick, fun, easy reads. Yeah. Don't think too much about it. Certainly don't make a podcast about it. And, <laughs> yeah, if, and if you do think too much about it, make sure you get other people to think too much about it and make a podcast. 
Well, I mean, it's a podcast because it's a time capsule. Yeah. We get to drop yeah. back 70 years and, like, look at the world. But I really enjoy... I enjoy listening to you guys very much because you are friends and you just have a way of being logical and fun and entertaining. And I, I really you. love this podcast. So. Thank you, man. Thanks for being on it. This was, this was really yeah, cool. Right. And I, honestly, when we thought of bringing on a guest, you were, you were the first name both of us kind of thought of. So yeah, thanks for, thanks uh, for joining us. It's a fun, it's a really good story too. It's very, very much like the books, this bond story. So there's a lot, of Ian Fleming and a lot of James Bond in, in this. So I'm glad you could join us for this one. Yeah, and I would say if you if you want to know if you are into reading Bond books, you might want to start with the short stories. I could agree to that. To see that. if you like the style. This story is particularly good to decide if you want to read the books because yeah. A View to a Kill is very much a you know an action James Bond plot in miniature. It totally mm -hmm. is. And you still get Bond being a cynical dick just right, crapping, and you get a, crapping all over other guy people. Too, somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm itching for a cigarette. <laughs> Smoke up. Thanks Smoke again, your 80th man. cigarette of the day. <laughs> Pegs and Espionage is mixed, edited, and reluctantly produced by Flashback Productions. Music in this episode is by The Money Look. A really warm and very special thank you to Stephen for joining Ian and I as the first guest on our show. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us in this bonus episode as we explored Ian Fleming's From a View to a Kill, one of the several James Bond short stories. Much like those hedge sparrows, we are tardily working on season three and our review of Moonraker, the third novel in the James Bond series, where a stone-cold case of the Mondays quickly turns into high-stakes gambling with Sir Hugo Drax a self-made multi-millionaire who's building the largest rocket anyone has yet seen with the support and admiration of all England. Well, all that is except for one man. All coming up soon on Eggs and Espionage, the origins of James Bond. Along the oak branch, and he smiles to himself. Private armies, private wars. How much energy they siphoned off. What the fuck? From the common yeah. cause. That, that Start again. <laughs> that totally got ruined. That beautiful moment. I was like there with you, and then I was somewhere else. So. Christmas. Um. Hang on. There was this part. I, this happens a lot, Stephen. By the way, we pause, figure out things, and then it all gets edited. <laughs> Uh, I hope that stays in there. No. <laughs> Chris Just edits out oh, his, own, his own fumbles and foibles, but he leaves mine in because he thinks they make good radio. <laughs> <laughs> and they do. I take a lot of it.